please be advised. All music tracks used in this production are sole property of Kelson Communications and are original compositions. Also, please be advised that the sound bite you'll hear from Dr. Richard Stone, I was granted permission to use from administrative personnel at the VA in Washington. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate. Coming up will be a Kelson on the Air social work podcast special series entitled Social Workers Confronting COVID-19 with Compassion, Courage, and Character. Over the next several weeks, you will hear from social workers from all over the country share their stories and their experiences battling and dealing with this devastating pandemic. It is my greatest wish that these stories will garner a new level of appreciation for the vitally important role that social workers play in confronting the challenges, heartbreak, and tragedies this coronavirus is wreaking on all of us. Social workers are there for everyone right now as they are always. To open up this series, please hear this profound message from Dr. Richard Stone, executive in charge of the Veterans Health Administration in Washington, D.C. Following that, you'll hear Dr. Melanie Sage, LCSW, and assistant professor of social work at the University of Buffalo State University of New York. Please listen, learn, and be inspired. Thank you for tuning in. Today, I want to talk to you about our social work community. You know, social workers are always there. They're always part of our team. And they're always interacting with our patients for various specific needs. But now with social isolation, people, uh, people have need social workers for the first time. And our social workers, for the most part, have worked face-to-face with our patients and their families. Now they can't do that. It's very difficult work, and it's unprecedented the level of support we've gotten from our social works community. I want you to think about how much financial instability has uh, has been induced during all of this shutdown. Uh, people are worried about money. People are worried about their jobs. People are worried about each other, and it's our social workers who are the glue that holds this together. And in any really good healthcare system. The social workers are out in front trying to make sure families are well taken care of and all of the unique needs that are not met by our medical professionals are really handled by the social work community. So today I'd like you to take a minute and just thank your social workers that are part of your team and recognize how much extraordinary work they've been able to accomplish throughout this pandemic. Thank you. To everyone tuning in, welcome. This is Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate. You're listening to the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast, the program that promotes, celebrates, uplifts, and highlights the social work profession. This podcast aims to educate the general public to the vital contributions professional social workers make in every aspect of society every day. Our guest for today is Dr. Melanie Sage, whose practice background includes 10 years in public child welfare, hospital mental health work, and also working with the Veterans Administration. She is the director of the Institute for Healthy Engagement and Resilience at the Buffalo Center for Social Research. Her research passion is the beneficial uses of technology for promoting well-being, especially for marginalized youth. She is currently the chair of the Human Services Information Technology Association, known by the acronym HUSIDA, which is an international nonprofit that promotes ethical technology use. And she also is the co-chair of the Social Work Grand Challenge of Harnessing Technology for Social Good Committee. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome to today's show our special guest, Dr. Melanie Sage. So welcome to the show, Melanie. Uh, thank you for coming on and taking time out of your schedule to participate in this. Thank you so much for having me here, Silas. I'm happy that you contacted me about the love letter to social work that I wrote when I was working with so many students who were facing stresses related to the pandemic. We're going to have our listeners hear that in its entirety. A love letter to social workers on the front line of COVID-19. Social workers are often unsung heroes, and that's often okay with them. They go about their work in the backgrounds of organizations that are meant to do other things, in hospitals that are meant to save lives, in schools that are meant to educate children. 
They work in child welfare agencies where the work is so sensitive that they avoid talking about it. In fact, most people don't even want to think about it. They hear social work and say, Oh, I can never do that. Social workers try to show up with humility while giving their best help to people who are the most vulnerable. Before I became a social work professor, I did casework in hospitals, child welfare agencies, crisis hotlines, and in the Veterans Administration. But now I'm in the very privileged place of teaching others about social work while I reflect on, analyze, and research best practices for making the world a better place for the most vulnerable. I have not worked through a pandemic until now. Today I'm telling you the stories of my colleagues, my former students, my current students, those I am connected to, like a string of hearts, with our value for social justice serving as a constant thread. I've asked permission to share their stories. One social worker I hear from is in her first semester of graduate school and is stationed in the emergency room of the New York City Hospital at ground zero of the pandemic. Her normally bright affect is absent. I can see the exhaustion on her face and hear it in the pauses of her voice. One small part of her job is helping comfort families after the death of a loved one and preparing for what comes next. A mortuary, a funeral, their hopes for an honorable celebration of life, how they will manage their loss. Now she's not sure about the procedure. Things change every day. The mortuaries are full. How will they gather the remains? It's not clear. She will figure it out. In some local hospitals, refrigerator trucks hold the overflow of remains of those lost to COVID-19. People say goodbye to dying loved ones through glass windows, using walkie-talkies to avoid contamination. All this adds to the weight of the grief in this crisis. Like most social workers, she absorbs some of that grief. In normal times, she would process it with colleagues and supervisors, use self-care strategies, but there's no time for that right now. The sadness sits with her. She is not only experiencing loss alongside her patients. She is not only afraid to bring home the virus. She is afraid to bring home the pain of patients and their families that she has collected all day long. She is afraid she will pass that on to her young child and her husband. She shares with me that someday she gets home, and within the hour she is called back. Someone didn't make it to their shift. More coverage is needed. She can hardly say no. I get an instant message from another social work friend and ask her how she's doing. She spends her work days between two group homes. Each house is 25 vulnerable men with difficulties stemming from substance abuse. They thrive on structure. Some are recently released from prison. But nothing is normal right now. The outings they usually go on, from walks in the park to grocery trips to in-person recovery meetings, are all on hold. The men have limited amount of time to get ready for independence and worry that the pandemic will use up all their insurance-approved treatment time and that they won't have jobs before they are expected to move out on their own. My friend tries to provide calm and structure within the walls of these group homes. She soothes anxiety and also makes sure that all the normal things get done. Medication management, daily living skills, online appointments, job search, treatment. She has found them virtual 12-step meetings, but it's hard right now. They are abuzz with the news of COVID. And congregate care settings creates a risk of coronavirus spread. I'm trying to make lemonade out of lemons every day, she says. Although she would love a good hug from her partner at the end of a stressful shift, my friend is sleeping in the guest room of her house to avoid contaminating him. There is no personal protective equipment for her. She has made her own mask from fabric, although she knows it's not a good form of protection. On the topic of PPEs, a student sheepishly tells me what she has done. She is deeply grounded in ethical practice, but emotionally conflicted about how to balance her own care with that of her clients and community. The child agency where she works is providing surgical masks to clients, but not to employees. She took one to use for herself, a disposable she is re reusing several days in a row. She doesn't want her own child to get sick, he has asthma, but still, she feels bad for using a tool meant for clients. She has talked to the agency about protecting workers, and the response from the administration is that they are working on it. Bureaucracy moves at a snail's pace. 
They quietly condone the workers making safe choices for themselves, but avoid direct guidance about what that means in the context of the federally mandated face-to-face contacts they must make. This student conducts interviews about child abuse on quiet front porches when she can, instead of going into houses, because maybe that's safer. But minimizing contact is not always possible. Sometimes the call is an emergency. A mother is passed out after an overdose and needs medical care. The two-year-old needs immediate safety. There's no avoiding touching the child. Not only is it cruel, but the child will also need carrying, buckling in car seats, a tight hug. Child welfare workers do the best they can with what they have, and often what they have is not enough. Another student sends me an apologetic email. She's going through a divorce and making a sudden move with her young child. She is currently working from home, but as a supervisor at the Substance Abuse Center, she's covering her work plus the work of another who is out on emergency leave. It's hard to balance with her move. Her husband was laid off and will not be able to help with support. She will lose internet access for four days during the transition. It's a little chaotic with the move and work and my son at home. And could she have another few days on an assignment? It's been hard to concentrate. Oh my goodness, who can concentrate right now, I try to tell her. While the real messiness of real life continues for each of the social workers as they provide invaluable services to their communities. I hear from another social worker, a student in a rehabilitation care agency, the kind we see on the news where outbreaks spread like wildfires and cause a string of deaths. They've closed down visits even though visits are exactly the thing that sustains hope for residents in her facility. She's taken it upon herself to rally the team and find iPads to set up video visits for the group of folks who often have limited technology skills. She's not sure how it will work. She's not sure if it will work. She's building the road as she drives down it. She tells me that many of the medical staff end up in the social work office since all this has started, a place they know that people will hold space for all their grief. Social workers are not afraid of grief. Holding space is just a thing social workers do. It means you can show up here with all the messy feelings. We won't try to fix you or tell you not to cry or that you shouldn't feel that way. You can say the things that are not safe to say in other spaces. We will hold your words with confidence. And just as important, we will not judge you for saying them. We know that feelings are complicated and that they come in waves, that sometimes we just need someone to be with us in our messy feelings. We are holding space for a lot of people right now. Doctors, nurses, respiratory specialists, and so many other emergency providers are still showing up every day to save lives. Social workers are there to make lives worth living. They provide hope in the midst of loss, find resources for those who have none. Once the doctors rush out of the room, social workers sit with someone for an hour to conduct an assessment of their psychosocial histories. Do they have anyone at home who will help? Will they be able to climb the stairs in their entryway? Are they having thoughts of suicide? And if so, can we talk about the guns in the house? They have all the hard conversations and try to leave the person with a sense of hope that things can and will get better. As the pandemic winds down and hospital admissions return to normal, social workers will continue to pick up the pieces related to the domestic violence and child abuse that spikes during this kind of crisis. About 40% of social workers are employed with government agencies as vital members of public safety net programs. Social workers will work with those who have fallen into depression and substance abuse. They will facilitate grief groups and individual therapy for the multiple kinds of losses experienced, such as jobs, partners, parents, graduation ceremonies, and more. They will help children readjust to school after an extended absence, in some cases spent in chaotic environments. They will help agencies rethink policies and practices, collect and analyze data, and conduct community assessments so that we are better prepared for the next time this happens. They will lead conversations about how agencies can provide trauma-informed care in the face of widespread community trauma. Wise agencies will have a social worker at their tables during this strategic planning to help think through the disparate impacts of the pandemic and how to do better at assuring equitable outcomes for vulnerable populations. 
As a fast-growing occupational path, social workers provide the majority of mental health services in our country and will be a vital part of our recovery. And yet, social workers are often the last in line for PPEs, for extra resources, for accolades. They are missing from the memes that say that we should forgive all student loans, give raises to all the medical professionals when this is over, despite the fact that they are paid among the lowest of the essential health professionals. Still, they come up with resources out of nowhere through a search of their electronic Rolodex of community agencies and personal contacts with whom they've nurtured relationships for a time just like this. You need iPads? You need a motel room, a bus voucher? You need a list of people to call in an emergency? A drug rehab that's still accepting admissions? You need someone to talk to about the thing that just happened that nobody else believes. Those are the things that social workers do. They are unsung heroes, and this is the reason for my love letter to social workers. If you know one, add them to the list of heroes of the pandemic, and please thank them for their miraculous work from six feet away. I want to ask you to talk a little bit about love letter to social workers. I really wanted to reflect the hard work of social workers in our field. Explain what motivated you, what moved you to write it, and how was it that you were able to capture so much of the essence of what social workers do and what we go through in that wonderful soliloquy that you wrote? Yeah, I think that the part of it that captured attention was um, I talked about not just the work, but the feelings, right? That our our jobs as social workers are complicated. And one of the things that um, drove me to write this is that in a time like this, you know, as a social worker with a social work heart, um, I love to be able to train future social workers as an educator, and I feel like I have the potential to make big impacts that way. But part of me also feels like, oh, I belong on on the ground, or I should be doing something more important than what I'm doing right now. And um, and my students and other social workers I know are putting themselves at great risk for their service. And, uh, and I'm not in a position to go out and do that work right now, but I thought, Maybe I could help tell their stories. And, and the workers who are most stressed right now certainly don't have the time to sit down and write a nice long blog post about it, right? Yes. So um, I had some students in my class who were telling me the stories of their experience. And I teach an advanced practice seminar. And we really made some adjustments to the class in the midst of this because, uh, like I tell in the in the um story that I wrote. Some of my students were, live right in New York City. They were called all of a sudden to d- double shift and they're seeing people come in with COVID and people dying and uh, and this really um, chaotic situation all around them. And I, I was uh, really touched by their stories and, I, and I'm laughing because as these things were going on and uh, we're talking about them in message boards and I use video message boards so that we could really hear each other and um, and see the experiences that the cohort of students are going through. But uh, the laugh was about students telling me, and I'm sorry, I didn't get my paper in on time <laughs> in, in the background <laughs> of this thing going on. And I just thought like, oh my gosh, like how do I teach you uh, as a professor to have the humanity to look at somebody who is in crisis and say, we're not focused on the homework right now. We're focused on you being okay. And um, and so really that's the message that I tried to relay in my classroom and model for my students Mm -hmm. that when we're in crisis, we're talking about getting basic needs met. So we really um, focused on, on basic knowledge that the students needed for my class, but really on taking lessons from the environment and the disparities we're seeing in communities and um, focusing on those things, how to talk about them and and um, how to humanize the data that we were seeing about um, disparities and, and the rate of people dying in black communities. Yes. And it had um, matched so well with work that we had already done that semester in talking about some of those issues. And I just said, like, okay, now look around. We're living it. Let's talk about that. Yes. Um, so, so that was really what what sparked this letter. It was that combined with um, I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter, mm-hmm. and I was seeing a lot of my social work colleagues saying, "Okay, here's another thing about 
um, the sacrifices of nurses and the sacrifices of doctors, and they're getting paid to come to New York uh, at uh, three times their normal salary to work in our communities, and uh, and everybody's looking over the role of social workers and all this, and we're going to be the ones to pick up all the pieces. Yes, absolutely. So, what are you seeing recently since the, the shutdown, the pandemic, COVID-19? How have you seen that affect populations that you work for, uh, the students that you teach, and the communities that you serve? Yeah, great question. Since my interest is uh, so much on technology, it's been really interesting to watch is because we used to have a lot of bias about whether online relationships were real, for instance, or whether um, one can really get social support online. And now we're all kind of scrambling to figure out how to stay connected to other humans outside of our houses using tech tools. And one of the things that we found is that social workers don't have the digital literacy to jump into a lot of the services that they've had to use in this pandemic um, for instance, they're now being asked to use telehealth, but have may- maybe never been trained in telehealth. And so that's one of the problems that we're facing right now is scrambling to do good practice using the tools that we have. And of course, for um, our marginalized populations like foster youth, we're realizing that some of them don't have good access to the technology yes. or don't have good internet access. And so... Um, We've been talking for several years about how the digital divide has kind of gone away in that lots of people across diverse income ranges do have access to technology, but that digital divide hasn't necessarily gone away for youth in foster care. Hmm. So um, there's still a population who um, has not been afforded the same opportunities as even kids of lower income who are in traditional family settings. So that's been something to grapple with. And kids in foster care haven't been getting regular face-to-face visits because of regulations. Um, Kids who are at risk of abuse and neglect aren't getting face-to-face visits because of um, restrictions and everybody trying to keep themselves safe. So uh, workers are also trying to figure out how to conduct home visits and assess risk and all those things via technology. So, of course, we lose some cues that way. And and coupled with uh, workers' um, lack of familiarity with using those tools, yes. it's even harder to make those moves. So um, just today I did a webinar with the National Child Welfare Workforce Institute about how to um, navigate technology and social media for child welfare contact. And 3,000 people registered because people are really hungry for this information right now. And uh, and it's become a, a bit of a crisis. Please give our listeners a little more background. Briefly tell them a little bit about yourself and some of your initiatives and endeavors. My research focuses on the intersection of social work and technology, and especially on changing the life, youth, and foster care and harnessing technology to help do that. So uh, I've been interested in the intersection of technology and child welfare for a lot of years and have been studying the impact of social media in the lives of youth. And I'm really interested in how um, youth have healthy and sustained relationships in online environments because our kids in foster care have so many relational losses. And I know that social media and other technologies have the potential to keep them connected to healthy people in their lives, but there are also a lot of risks for them online. So I'm trying to contribute to the literature and interventions about how young people can stay healthy online and avoid the risks so that they can enjoy the potential benefit. Uh, but that's only a small piece of my life. Certainly another important piece of my life is in, is in supporting the social work workforce and improving the lives of uh, social workers related to their training. And so I do that as a teacher and also uh, I train in the community in the area of motivational interviewing and work on some child welfare projects to help sustain a healthy engaged workforce and improve organizational culture and climate. 
Oh, okay. Well, thank you for um, giving us those uh, insights into some of the things that you do. You, you hit on a couple of very interesting topics that just really caught my attention right away. One of them is, you know, the fact that you work to support the foster care initiatives that are going on, um, in, in obviously, in your area and within social work. That's always something that's very near and dear to my heart because I am a product of that foster care system. So anytime I hear mm-hmm. foster care, I'm always, you know, all ears to, to hear more about what takes place. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about what it specifically is that you do to support foster care children and also the parents and then talk about how you've had to shift the way that you address that now with onset of COVID-19 pandemic, if you could, please. Absolutely. Well, we know that um, for a long time, we've been talking about the risks of using technology and communication for young people. And there are a lot of scary things that can happen out there. And my long drum beats around this has been, yes, there are risks, but there are also risks associated with driving cars or having sex, right? And we use mostly prevention models to minimize the risks so that youth can still um, enjoy the benefits of driving a car, for instance, or because we know that they're going to end up in relationships so that they avoid some of the risky parts of unprotected or unsafe sex. So we give them some tools to navigate these things. And so my call out to social workers and foster parents and other people has been like, we can't just shut down social media altogether because this is the way a lot of young people connect. And we know that healthy relationships are so important to youth as they age out. And we know that youth in foster care often move from place to place and they lose all kinds of um, relationships and friendships along the way and youth today make and sustain a lot of their friendships online and um and i worry a lot that foster parents and child welfare workers just try to shut that down they say that's dangerous so kids shouldn't do that and so um i want to kind of change that narrative so that youth in care aren't being protected (laughs) from things that might actually cause cause some opportunity for them too um, we did that years ago by saying that youth in foster care couldn't drive cars or play football because it was too risky. And now we do that with some technologies. So um, so I'm an advocate that youth in foster care have the same opportunities that kids not in foster care have. And, and I'm also working on other ways that we might harness benefits for them. So one of those ways I mentioned was around workforce development Mm -hmm. Um, in child welfare. The national average length of time that a worker stays in their job is two years. And we also know that it takes about two years to learn how to do the job well. So that means that it's pretty rare for kids to have a worker who knows how to do the job well. And if they do get one, the odds are that they're probably going to lose them because they leave their jobs so fast anyway. So it's another kind of loss for them. Uh, and uh, and it's also a, a problem that they're working with people who aren't experienced and skilled in their jobs. Yes. So yes. Um, in some of my other work, um, I'm working with some computer science faculty right now mm-hmm. on um, figuring out how we can harness machine learning for older youth in foster care. So what we're doing is we're trying to use machine learning algorithms to figure out where bias exists in the way that services are delivered to older youth in care. Um, We're trying to look at who gets what kind of services and then how those services relate to outcomes. So there's some national data that talks about this, but a lot of times when we use algorithms or machine learning in practice, they're used in ways that kind of amplify bias. So in our project, we're really trying to work out um, where does where does uh, machine math kind of bias work its way in to amplify bad results, and also where does human bias work its way in to create situations where, like, um, maybe kids of color don't get as many services as um, white kids, for instance, and, or maybe um, kids in rural areas don't get the quality of services as kids in urban areas. And we're also trying to predict um, what services lead to good outcomes for kids. And our hope is that this investigation will help us be able to create some kind of prompts or suggestions for workers who don't have maybe lots of experience to draw from because they're so often new workers to Mm -hmm. say, like, 
maybe you should consider this service right now for this kid because these kinds of services are connected to good outcomes for kids in these kinds of situations. So that's our goal down the road. This is a project funded by the National Science Foundation and Amazon. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're going to spend about the next three years testing these services and um, and then take them out to the field and get lots of critique. And we're working with a uh, youth council of former foster youth to help guide us in what they think is fair. So it's, we're not focusing all our energy on what um, administrators see as fairness, for instance, which is, um, we think, one of the fairness problems in our system. Well, some very interesting things that you're working on. And uh, thank you for, you know, enlightening our listeners to, to some of those things. Hi, this is Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate. I'm the host of the Kelson on the Air social work podcast, heard and hosted right here on Anchor FM, and I love it. Try it, and you'll love it too. And here's why. First, you get an RSS feed, which is absolutely critical for distribution of your podcast. Your show will be distributed and heard on seven additional podcast platforms besides Anchor. Platforms such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and much, much more. And get this, they even offer analytics so that you can see how well your podcast is doing. And as if that weren't enough, they also give you a breakdown of what each chart or graph means. In addition to that, when you host your podcast on Anchor, you get international exposure. That's right, your podcast is heard in different countries around the globe. And just so you know that they're really in your corner, they provide you with info about sponsorship opportunities as well. So for secure services for your podcast, make sure to use your Anchor Podcasting Services. So with that said, a lot of your you know focus does seem to be you know with the workforce and also with children, especially foster children. And I know a lot of uh, what's been happening is that um, with that, all the children you know around the state and lots of parts of the country, but certainly here in New York State, being uh, relegated to homeschooling, they're sitting in their homes with you know these uh, Chromebooks and iPads and. You know, the kids are pretty technologically savvy. It's the parents that are really challenging in a lot of ways because now you have, theoretically, what you have is you have the the kids teaching their parents about what's supposed to be happening with the the technology. So I think that's an interesting twist. But I I like the point that you brought up that, you know, since the uh, onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, it's kind of highlighting, you know, the, uh, the, the inequalities that exist. You know, they're becoming more glaring now that you see that the other thing that I'm hearing from a lot of social workers is that you know the whole fact that you know a lot of kids in you know underserved communities and homes and and, and neighborhoods you know they depended on school for two meals a day and now that school's not there you know you know society has had to scramble to kind of put something together to make sure that those kids get that nutrition so i guess in a lot of ways uh this pandemic is really highlighting a lot of things that still need to be worked on and a lot of the inequalities that have always existed but uh kind of you know i guess society has kind of just moved on and and tried to pretend that it's not as bad as it is so it's great to see that you know some of the research that you're doing is taking a look at that now and actually applying some of the things that you've already learned and known now that you see all these glaring needs, especially with the foster care population and kids from underserved communities. So I think that's great that you're doing this. Now, it's so important that we let our listeners know that that piece got a huge amount of uh, reaction and response from social workers, which is great because it kind of galvanized what social workers that are really working out there in the trenches on the front lines and face to face with the pandemic it really kind of galvanized them to say hey listen you know the doctors and i and i've been saying this since you know i started you know thinking about this project yes the doctors and the nurses um should be thanked and they do a phenomenal job it has nothing to do with well you know you're thanking them and what about us it's that People don't realize what it is that we do. And I think that your letter, the love letter to social workers, which I think was so brilliantly titled, really kind of said what it is that makes most people go into social work in the first place is that we go that extra mile because that's what we believe. And that's what it's like you said, it's in our heart. And we do it, you know, out of the passion. So I'm glad that you were able to capture that emotion 
Was it many different stories or was it just one or two stories um, or just hearing from social workers in a few places? Was it a combination of social workers and students and, and, and medical social workers and hospice social workers? Because all of those all of those areas were places that there was a lot of heartbreak and a lot of tragedy. And what I'm hoping that listeners will understand is that everywhere that there was something that was serious and dire going on there's something that has to do some way somehow with the social worker and that i think is what people miss out yeah everybody knows a doctor what a doctor does and what a nurse does mm-hmm. and what a nurse practitioner does and a, and a physician's assistant does but do you know what a social worker does do you know who sits in that room when the doctor walks out and says okay you know we're gonna have to put you on a ventilator do you know who's sitting with those patients when None of their family members can be there. So I think that's really what, you know, I'm hoping that this whole project will bring out. And your your letter certainly captured my attention. And I think it was really a wake-up call to society to say, hey, listen, we do this every day. This is not just since the pandemic. This is, goes on every day. And like you talked about um, the basic needs, we kind of guide mm-hmm. ourselves with trying to make sure that Maslow's hierarchy of needs are met in that order so that people can get to the top and self-actualize. So I think it was great that you let people know that, hey, it's social workers and we're, we're bearing the brunt of this as far as, you know, you know the, the heartache and the pain because the doctors and the nurses, as wonderful as they are, when it's all over and said and done, well, where do they go when they need to have somebody to talk to? They go to the social work office. And I heard another social worker right. <laughs> tell me that that all the doctors and the nurses, they go to the social work office because they know that there's a space there and people there that are trained to, to hold their grief. So, you know, we got to take a look at all of that. Um, and just an, an interesting point about social workers, Dr. Richard Stone the executive in charge of the Veterans Health Administration, did a beautiful video tribute. He specifically went online and said, we need to thank social workers. And I thought that was very, very powerful for him to do that, especially in in this particular time. We want to make sure that that listeners understand. Well, the whole point about social workers is we go about quietly doing our work unassumingly and we just kind of fade into the background. And we don't, you know, really make a lot of issues about, you know, who we are, or what we do. So a lot of social workers that I've talked to, they said, hey, well, listen, yes, the doctors and the nurses and, the, you know, but then they started talking about the delivery people and the truck drivers and the grocery workers and the Walmart workers. And all of those people are wonderful. They're all essential workers. But again, we are as essential as anybody and we've been deemed and dubbed in that class as essential workers so i think it's really important and so have you gotten people that have responded and verbally or or in writing commended you on the piece or you know said how much it moved them or how it related to a story that they experienced in another part of the country or the state yeah, well, this is one of the really cool things, you know, that I published this on LinkedIn, and I I didn't know if anybody would read it. Uh, I write academic journal articles, and <laughs> we don't know if anybody reads those until somebody cites them, and maybe I've spent six months writing a research paper, and four people cite it after a couple of years, right? So we don't get a lot of feedback. And in this situation, although I won't get uh, much in the way of academic credit for it, um, you know, like I said, I could see that 110,000 people had viewed it and about 600 people commented directly on LinkedIn. And uh, and I got random emails from strangers who just said, you know, I saw this thing and I just wanted to tell you that it was it was really important to me. Several people said that they cried when they read it or that they really resonated with it. And so I, I felt really good that even though I only told the stories of about four different workers, there were enough relatable pieces in it that it mm-hmm. resonated widely. You'll notice that one of the things that I did not say is we do it for the outcome, not the income, <laughs> which is a, a trope that I really hate, you know, that we're not here just to, um, just because we have good hearts. And uh, really I wanted to draw out, we're doing, as hard of work as these people who are getting a lot of widespread uh, credit and energy for doing the work. And I think that this is one of the things that we can do better um, as social workers. We are often better at advocating for other people than we are for ourselves. Yes. And we can come together better professionally to to do um, professional advocacy 
Because you're right, we're essential workers and um, we are often underpaid compared to nurses and other health professionals. And so we need to keep raising our profile. Yes, we do. And one of the ways to do that is to do better storytelling about what we do. And often that storytelling is not the statistics about how many people we serve or how many social workers we are, but sometimes we can sneak those things in. And I did that a little bit in my letter. Mm -hmm. Um, But you mentioned the VA, which is the largest employer of social workers in the nation. And social workers carry a really heavy load in um, the Veterans Administration. So I'm glad that he recognized that. And um, and one of the reasons this letter caught fire is because it came at the right time, right? Um, there are social workers and other people who appreciate social workers who said, oh, yeah, them. So I think that we really need to figure out how to harness opportunities um, when there are high-profile situations like we've got now around all the disparity issues. This is a great time to say Listen up, you organizations who are figuring out that more people are dying in black communities and that the like, information uh, isn't making it to some communities the way it is to other uh, PPEs aren't making it to some communities as, as the others. You organizations that are involved in this, you need social workers to help you work out the disparity issues and think about how you plan for better outcomes that don't marginalize certain kinds of people, right? Absolutely. Like right now in the child welfare system, I'm preaching that hard and saying, okay, this obviously opened all of our eyes to one, the need for technology literacy for social workers, two, for technology access to for kids in care. And a lot of people are really kind of like, oh, well, we don't have we don't have maybe the the most secure services or we're not quite ready to do this. Okay, so I understand the need for encryption and HIPAA protection, but sometimes we we have to get to the heart of our work. It's about like how are we connecting a child to a parent for a visit and yes. how do we weigh the benefits and risks of that particular situation? And I'm not prioritizing uh, encrypted internet over connected family today. And I will justify that in my case notes and in my court records. Absolutely. So wherever social workers are working right now, I think that we just need to stand up and be not afraid to advocate for the people that we're serving and uh, with the agencies who serve the clients who are vulnerable and for ourselves as a profession to say, hey, we're doing important work here and we're not just going to sit around and be told what to do Well. Um, people are suffering under these circumstances. Exactly. And, and also one of the things that I, I think is we as a profession miss the opportunity is to point out profound impact that a social worker or social workers can have on the trajectory of someone's life path. And again, when I speak about this, I'm speaking from firsthand knowledge, but the point I'm trying to make is that when a social worker puts their heart and soul into helping a person and a lot of times it might be you know a child well just think that the effort and the energy and the dedication and the knowledge and the skill that that social worker puts into helping that child can change the direction and the path of that child's life and that can make a profound difference in how that child grows up and develops now we've talked about in the social work profession aces adverse childhood experiences and we've certainly talked about and we're using now the data from uh, social determinants of health so what I'm saying is that what a social worker does with a child or with a with an adolescent or with uh, someone that's addicted or with someone, a, 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 you know, a mother or a parent who's struggling with parenting or someone who's dealing with food insecurity or someone who doesn't have a good viewpoint of themselves from, from a social work standpoint, boosting someone's self-esteem, just giving them a, a sense of, I can get through this. Now, imagine how that affects that person's view on themselves. And maybe they go on to become something that they never thought that they could. And then they take that dedication that they got from the social worker, they internalize it, and then they go on and they pass that on to their family members, to their community, and to someone that they never never even met before, simply because a social worker took the time out to put in the time and the effort and show that person that they cared and that they could do better and that the social worker was determined to find a way for that person to do better and to be better. And so that's a big part of what we miss is telling the story of the impact 
Now, a lot of times, like you said, the demonica, I'm not in it for the income, I'm in it for the outcome. We, we change that. We're in it for the income and the outcome. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay, right? <laughs> yeah. Because... Because we we deserve to get paid for yes. the, the kind of work that we do. Absolutely. One of my professors when I was studying at uh, Delphi, uh, Professor uh, Maria Elsa Quadra, she said, it's okay to help people and get paid significantly for it. There's no, there's no harm in that. Some of the most successful people that I've heard of in doing my research are social workers. Suze Orman, uh, Brene Brown, you know, they're social workers, professional social workers. The one thing that I think that we miss as social workers, and I say this all the time whenever I give a, a speech, whenever I address especially students, and I got this from... Um, a dear colleague and friend of mine from uh, Stony Brook University, the director of the social work programs there, um, Dr. Jack Lamandros, who who I simply adore. She said, listen, whatever you do, because we can work in so many different um, categories and so many different industries, but whatever you do, whatever your title is, you make sure that you work in there, that you are a social worker. If you're a researcher, you're a social work researcher. If you're a uh, government relations specialist and you have a degree in social work, say that you're a social worker in government relations. Say that. Let people know. Oh, wow. I didn't know social workers could work in that in that industry. I didn't know social workers. I didn't know you could do that with a social work degree. There's so many things that you can do with a social work degree. And we need to tell that story, but we need to identify the fact that we're social workers. My my book, I'm an e-journalism social work advocate. So when someone hears that, they go, well, what is that? Well, I'm somebody that is trained in journalism, but I'm also trained in social work. And I happen to merge those two, and I'm now e-journalism social work advocate. And my job is to promote the profession, to highlight the profession. But I think that's all of our jobs. We all need to do that. We all need to say, stand up and say, we're social workers and we deserve the recognition. And here's what we do. Because a lot of people don't know what we do. When the people hear social work, CPS, taking somebody's kids away from them and helping somebody get food stamps. Those are two of the things out of the 150,000 things that we do as social workers. So I'm so glad that you you were able to pen that essay so powerfully written with the emotion so so people can know. And, and, and there are a lot of other stories the listening public will be hearing about social workers that are right there in the thick and the heart of this fight with COVID-19 and people don't even realize it. All they think about is the doctors and the nurses and the EMTs. They don't think about the social workers. And I'm hoping that this project will change that for the better so we can get more recognition and more respect. And then that can raise our profile. And then the people can know why we say that we deserve to get compensated for the impact that we have. You can't put a price on changing somebody's life. You can't say, oh, well, you're a social worker. You help people. You change people's lives. Okay, let me see. How much is that worth? Well, you there's, it's, that's priceless. <laughs> that's priceless what we do because there's a ripple effect. We can actually reverse the whole social determinants of health, the whole adverse ch- childhood experiences by simply taking somebody that's been negatively affected with, by that and giving them an opportunity to get it right, to do better and telling them that they can do better and showing them I'm here to help you to get to the next level with veterans, with with, with uh, substance use disorder people. Any population that you talk about, a social worker has a, a profound impact on that person's life, which then has a ripple effect. And I think that's a lot of what you captured in your essay. And so, again, I just want to thank you for that. Um, so as we get ready to wrap up, I want you to just just take a moment and leave our listeners with some some parting thoughts that you would like to leave them with about who we are, what we do, what you do, and how it all relates to how we're going to continue to help people move forward and work um, this very devastating time in our history. Well, thank you for your passion. I I certainly um, am excited to hear people who are so excited about who we are as a profession. And and I feel that excitement and live that excitement too. Uh, We especially need that right now because um, as one of my, one of my colleagues has said that there's there's sort of a thin veil right now, right between um, the way that we used to do things and the way that we're going to do things. Mm -hmm. And if social workers can kind of brush through that veil when, uh, when we're in this time of dramatic policy and practice change and say, here's, what needs to happen next 
and they're speaking from the social work voice of justice and integrity and values and attention to the most vulnerable as we move into setting these new changes for how we're going to operate as systems, that can be um, so important. So my call out to social workers who are listening to this is to is to rush through that door. If your organization right now you're working in and you've been kind of frustrated with the way that some of the things work, um, take this opportunity when people are figuring out how we're going to recover from this to say, I, I have an idea for a better way. And if we really care about the people at risk that we're working with, let's think about what's happened to them during these last months and how they're affected and how we can improve the outcomes so that they're more equitable with the outcomes of other people in our community, you know, to maybe don't have as many risks. And and don't be afraid to use your voice and your knowledge and your skills. Uh, because one of the things that I see in social workers often is that we minimize our tools because our tool is ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we're... Um, we maybe don't put that out in the front as the same way who somebody whose tool is like a scalpel or <laughs> a stethoscope might, right? Because um, because it's a little more vulnerable feeling. But um, we we know so many things that um, people in health professions haven't been trained to know, and people in um, management positions haven't been trained to know. So yes. we, we need to bring that to them and think more about um, the interdisciplinary practice and how we can affect those other professions with what we know. Absolutely. So that's my call to action for all of you. And then and then tell your stories about it, right? Yes. So st- start a blog or get on Twitter or uh, start a podcast yeah. or become an interviewee on a podcast and say, like, I've got something to say about our profession and what we do. Yes. And and what our systems need to do better. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and don't be afraid to contact your local media outlets and say, hey, I'd like to share some things about the social work profession. You know, I've you know had the opportunity on uh, three different occasions to um, to go out on, on media as a guest and represent the profession in, in a very profound way and was actually able to educate the host about social work, the profession, and, you know, the ability to earn a decent living. I did my research, and I used some of the information from the NASW website, and, and I went on this radio uh, program and uh, called Jobline, and, and the the, uh, the host, um, Mr. Scott Possessor, he, he, he was shocked. He, he had no idea. So we need to take those opportunities when we get them yeah. and make sure that we, you know, and I have a thing that I do when I, talk to social workers especially students or even professionals telling you know you know social workers i love to do this with the students i say everybody stand up i tell them i say say it loud i say repeat after me say it loud say it proud i am a social worker and i make a difference at the end of the day that's what we should get paid for and it's just like any other industry you get paid not for what the degree that you have or, you know, the credentials that you have. Those allow you to get the job. You get paid for the difference you make when you do the job. We need to constantly highlight that. So thank you for, you know, making sure that, that you carry that message. And let's keep spreading that message out there and, um, and get society to stand up and recognize who we are, what we do, and the value that we bring to society. So thank you for that. This is Silas, Perfect. your e-journalism Thanks, social Silas, work advocate and host of the show. You've been listening to the Kelsey on the Air Social Work Podcast. Thank you this so much. And all again, other programs that's going to wrap it up for this segment. Apple iTunes, uh, we've been talking with Dr. Melanie Sage, Spotify, the assistant professor of the, at the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Go to any search engine and type in Kelsey on the Air in the search window to hear the show in digital technology. Thank you for tuning in. This has been a Kelsey Communications production. She's also a licensed clinical social worker. She's been our special guest on this special segment of the Kelsey on the Air social work podcast thank you for tuning in